Hey there, Alabaster Jar listeners. Before we jump into today's episode, I'm here to share that we have a special treat in store for you this week. On Saturday, we are releasing a bonus episode, and it is part of a brand new series where we are talking with women who are students at Northern Seminary. We cannot wait to introduce you to these incredible women, and they've got some great stories to share. So go ahead and make plans to join us right back here on Saturday for this extra episode of The Alabaster Jar. Now, sit back and get ready for today's conversation. Welcome to The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, speaking with Dr. Jennifer Woodruff-Tate. Jennifer received her PhD from Duke University, and she is the managing editor of Christian History Magazine. Jennifer is the author of The Poison Chalice, Eucharistic Grape Juice, Common Sense Realism in Victorian Methodism, and her most recent book published this year titled Christian History in Seven Sentences. Jennifer is a priest in the Episcopal Church, and she lives in Berea, Kentucky with her husband, Edwin, and their two daughters. I'm so glad you could join us, Jennifer. Thank you so much for being with us in the Alabaster Jar podcast today. Thanks for having me. Well, Jennifer, as we get started today, um, quite a few of our listeners are active in ministry roles. And um, as we just shared in your introduction, you are a priest in the Episcopal Church. So I'd love for you uh, to just share with our listeners maybe a little bit of your journey of becoming an Episcopal priest, uh, what, how you discerned that calling, um, and just anything that you would like for people to know about that role. Yeah, uh, my journey actually took over 25 years, so I will try to condense it. I I grew up United Methodist. I am the daughter and granddaughter of United Methodist ministers. My grandfather was the president of Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky, and my father was for many years a pastor in the Methodist church, and I too set out to become a Methodist pastor almost just because it was the family business. And uh, I also knew from a very early age that I had some kind of academic calling. Um, I, I thought it would probably look like being a seminary professor or a college professor. I didn't know it would end up being the editor of a magazine, but but I knew that you know PhD was in my future. And those two things did not sort of play well together um, in the context of United Methodism in the 1990s and early 2000s. So I said, well, I guess I, I did not discern that adequately. At the same time, I had become more and more convinced as I, you know, I'd, I'd gone to seminary, I went to Asbury, studied the thought of the Wesley brothers, realized how important the Eucharist was to them, and I was more and more convinced of the necessity of weekly Eucharist in my life. So I started going to Episcopal churches as well as Methodist churches, Wednesday evening services, noon services, occasionally, you know, Sunday morning services, so that I could receive communion weekly. I met my husband, who is now Roman Catholic, but was at that time Episcopalian. I started going to his church with him. I continued as a Methodist layperson. And after about 18 years of this, I realized that all of that worship in the Anglican context had formed me um, and that I had become an Anglican, uh, and I might as well make this official. 
So I joined um, I joined the Episcopal Church in Northern in a parish in Northern Indiana as a layperson. We, we were actually the choir director and organist um, at this parish. And my priest said to me, "Well, I know you were, uh, you know, thought you thought at one point you were going to be a Methodist pastor. I think you had to enter discernment for the priesthood in the Episcopal Church." And I said, "No." They said, "You know, you're an academic. You know, God God isn't calling academics. It wasn't quite that unsettled, but you know." And, you know, and I'm doing all this work, you know, I'm the editor of Christian history, I'm choir director, I'm doing all this work as a layperson. He said, I think you ought to enter discernment. And discernment in the Episcopal Church looks like you sit in a room and do basically a once monthly Bible study on set passages and questions with your priest and some wise people from the congregation. So I did that. Uh, that's how it starts anyway. I did that. And at the end of the six months of going through the, the curriculum and talking, and they, they kept saying to me, no, I, I think this is a priestly calling. I think it's a priestly call. So I was like, okay, I guess I believe you. Uh, so I proceeded through the rest of the process, which actually went incredibly smoothly. Uh, no one questioned my, at that point I had a PhD. No one questioned my desire to have a PhD and also be a priest. I have been from the beginning a bivocational priest. I have been editing Christian history for nearly nine years now. And I've also served several small congregations who could not afford a full-time priest with benefits and all of that, but who need, uh, you know, someone who's there to preach, to administer the sacraments, to be on hand for some pastoral care, but who also are willing to take on a lot of lay-led ministry themselves. And I'm in a parish now like that, and it's wonderful. Um, I think if I was going to tell people anything, it would be, you know, what God is calling you to do in terms of ministry, including ordained ministry, may not look like what you think God is calling you to do. Um, sometimes the church gets in the way of the process. Sometimes the church provides people who are helpful guidance in the process. Um, but it's definitely something that involves seeking out counsel and discerning with friends and with pastors and with groups of people who, who you know are strong in Jesus and, you know, prayed up, as they used to say in my childhood. So. Well, and that, that's a, uh, such a wise word there. And uh, I, I, although you and I, Jennifer, have not met personally, we actually share together a really good friend, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones, who I learned as we were getting ready to press the record button for this podcast, that you know her well from your days at Duke University and have stayed connected with that family. And we're thrilled here at the Northern Seminary family that Beth will, or has just this month, has joined our, our team. So uh, it's fun to have that. And I also was raised United Methodist, not with pastors in the family, but uh, I resonated very much as you were talking about um, your childhood in the in the Methodist Church, but I, I'd love to jump in to uh, talk about this newest book, Christian History in Seven Sentences. Uh, I I love history as well, so I was very excited to see how you would accomplish what sounds like an absolutely impossible task. <laughs> Here's 140 pages. Can we have the history of the church, please? I know. <laughs> So I'm amazed, first of all, you're obviously a courageous person because you said yes to this project, which <laughs> is is uh, terrific. And just to help our listeners, I'll, I'll um, list the seven um, chapters that you did, and then we can just dive straight in. Um, you look at the Edict of Milan, the Nicene Creed, the Rule of St. Benedict, the excommunication of the patriarch, what is that? Corollius. Corollius, yes. <laughs> um, Martin Luther's 95 Theses, the Edinburgh, con uh, 
the Edinburgh Conference and the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. Uh, and and you, you use the image of a roadmap or a navigational chart, which I found so helpful. And then you also cite a quotation from G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, where he uses the phrase, the democracy of the dead, as kind of a way to think about this task that you're doing in church history. Can you unpack a little bit for us that why you like uh, Chesterton's phrase there, democracy of the dead, what he means by that and how that informs your study of history? Well, one, he, he, he said that that whole quote and, and he goes on to talk about an image that I love of the, of the truth sort of going through the ages, almost like on the back of a horse being pulled this way and that, uh, but in the end reeling, but, but erect, he says, and, and, but before he does that, he wants to talk about what the tradition is. And he said, well, we want to, he, he was writing at a time when people were talking about not just giving votes to people who had property, but you know, that we, we really need to give votes to all people of whatever class and race. And, and so he says, well, that, 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 that's a good thing. Uh, but we also need to, in, 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 terms of understanding the church and in terms of understanding theology and church history and understanding where we are now as a church, we need to remember that our ancestors get to vote too. That, you know, tradition means listening to the votes of your ancestors. So he's using this metaphor taken from politics, taken from, you know, really live issue in his time and a really live issue in our time, you know, all people should get to vote. And he says, well, that's true. And so when you move that to the church, dead people also get to vote. Uh, you know, because we don't reinvent the faith over and over again in every generation. Um, and when we try to do that, it always ends up really badly. That's me. That's not Chesterton. But but yeah, so. No, and that, I just found that as such a helpful framework for why to study history. I mean, I love history, so I don't feel it needs any kind of um, support, you know, or apology to do it. But uh, for those that might wonder, well, you know, what really matters is the now, uh, the way that you've, you've framed this project. It was so helpful. Um, and that, you know, history is a conversation and that's how you write this book. It's not just a list of dates, but it's really, you, you open up in, in such an engaging way. I mean, I just, I didn't skim, right? I, I read every page, right? Because <laughs> I just was drawn in to, uh, to the story. Um, so, boy, I, I, as we have the time, how about, can you talk a little bit about, I'll, I'll just start throwing out some of my own um, questions or where I was particularly interested um, in, in your chapter on the, uh, uh, let's see, on the Edict of Milan. I think that's where you also talk about the Council of Nicaea. But you tell this story about your husband sitting next to someone on a plane. And I believe that person was of a, another faith, a Muslim. And they had a wonderful conversation. But at one point, the Muslim uh, said to your husband, so you as Christians, you worship a God who can go to the bathroom? <laughs> and I thought, wow, that I've never heard the Council of Nicaea's conversation. Just this, you know, <laughs> how we get to believe in a God that, 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 that 
that can go to the bathroom. Yes, yes. I, but I, I love that story. It happened actually years ago. Now, I, when I was telling my husband about it, he's like, I think it happened longer ago than you say it did in the book. But anyway, it's it's been a kind of defining story in our house for talking about this kind of things because he was trying to explain the incarnation. You know, and he obviously explained it well enough that this guy picked up exactly on the major difference between the two faiths. You yes, because because Muslims also honor and revere Jesus Christ. I mean, they yeah, they, they part they, of their faith. Yeah, they believe Jesus is a, is a prophet. They, they they honor Mary. They they do. There are many things, but there is, and, I, and I'm not on here talk about about being a Muslim, but there, there is not, the incarnation is not built into that theological system the way it is into the Christian system. And for me, that's always been a powerful spiritual, you know, knowing not just that God went to the bathroom, but it's like, if God went to the bathroom, then, then God, then, then Jesus was also a God who could cry, you know, and who was a, ba a helpless baby. And I mean, we sing in all these Christmas carols about Jesus being a helpless baby, but I mean, I'm a mother and I've had helpless babies and sometimes they're gross and, you know, and that, I think that transforms our view of, of what, you know, a lot of times, and this is something not, doesn't just happen in the evangelical context, but a lot of times people say God when they mean God, the father, we, we get, we were Arians when we don't mean to be. And so, it's like there's God and then there's Jesus. And it's like, no, there's God and there's God and there's God. You know, we worship God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. You're bound to be talking about one of the three persons of the Trinity. So just say so, you know, say God, the Father, you know, say God in Jesus Christ. You know, so it's a, it's really hard for us, I think, to keep Jesus's humanity and divinity before us. Um, but I think oh. doing so is really, really spiritually helpful. Yes, well, and that was uh, that leads right into one of my follow-up questions because you do an excellent job of laying out why it was so important to understand the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus for these early Christians, the Council of Nicaea and some of these other councils. And you do list uh, a a series of heresies that that also emerged at this time: Docetism, modalism, adoptionism. And I wondered if if you could pick out maybe even today, do you find in our churches today that we have uh, misunderstandings that really are serious enough? I don't know if you would necessarily label them heresies because that can be an inflammatory term, but are, are serious enough to keep us from fully understanding this wonderful God that we serve? Yeah, well, I think that there's sort of two modern ways of thinking that stand in the tradition of the ancient heresies. I'll go, I'll go that far. One of them I've already mentioned is that a lot of us can be functional Arians, uh, which in that case, we're downplaying the divinity of Christ. We may relate very well to the, you know, to the person of Jesus and to his humanity, but we don't really, really, really think he's God in the same way we think God the Father is God. And we don't want, to, we don't know what to do with God, the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other story. But anyway, you know, uh, so you know, we don't, we're not really, and I mean, the Trinity is hard and you can't explain the Trinity and we want to, you know, so I understand why people do this, but, you know, it, it is an article of our faith as those first couple chapters of the book show that we have one God in three persons. And why is that important? It is important because otherwise Jesus can't save us in the ways the scriptures say that he saves us. So that's one thing. The other um, tendency, I think, is more of a tendency towards docetism, which is the opposite heresy, which is the one I actually, I 
as a younger person was more prone to, which is we're all about the divinity, but we don't really believe in the humanity. We don't really believe God went to the bathroom. We don't really believe God cried. You know, we don't really, we actually, and so for me at least, there was always kind of a lack of a bridge between the perfection I saw in Jesus and and my own spiritual journey. It was like, well, Jesus could do that because he's Jesus, but he's God and I'm not God. Well, yes, he is God and I'm not God, uh, but he's human and I'm human. And part of the reason for his being human, you know, like why why is this? Well, part of the reason is so that he goes through all these human experiences so that when we're praying and we're not praying to a God who has never experienced what we've experienced. And to me, that is a powerful, powerful spiritual statement. And if you go too far towards the divinity, you start losing it. And if you go too far towards the humanity, you start losing the awesomeness and the majesty and the power of God. So it's, it's very hard. Again, it's, we're back to Chesterton on his horse going back and yeah. forth. You know, it's so easy to fall to one side or the other, Chesterton says um, in that statement. And it's so hard to keep going right down the middle. No, absolutely. And, you know, as you were talking, you kept using the word humanity of Jesus, which is so important because another heresy that kind of emerges is stressing so much Jesus's maleness that women feel like, well, then do I need a female Messiah? But uh -huh. the point is not that Jesus was male and that's what's crucial. It's that he was human. So yeah, women I'm, also. Mm -hmm. That's been very helpful to me as a priest, because obviously there's more of a theological issue or people have more of a theological issue with um, priestly, you know, there are people who there, I mean, there are people who say women should not get in the pulpit, but there are people who will say, well, it's okay for women to, you know, to get in the pulpit, but it's not okay for women to stand behind the altar because that's a priestly function and we need a dude. And I'm like, no, that's a priestly function. We need a human. I, last time I checked, I'm human. <laughs> and, and, and if we, if we, I mean, Jesus, Jesus had to be, you know, of a gender, you know, I think I understand why in that society Jesus was the gender that he was. But but what is important is not Jesus doesn't save us by being a dude, you know. Right. And I think there's a lot of American Christianity right now. And everyone should go read uh, Kristen Kobes Dumez's Jesus and John Wayne. If you have not read this book, it is all about people thinking that Jesus saves us by being a dude. Yes. Yes, so. I, I agree. And I'll tell you another plug uh, from another generation. Uh, around the time of Chesterton is reading Dorothy Sayers' two essays put yes. together in a little pamphlet. Are women human? Yes. That is so fun. Yeah, you should go read that. You should go read that too, because yeah. Dorothy Sayers she had all these male friends like C.S. Lewis, and they all they they were you know devout Anglicans. They believed a lot of the same things, but you know Lewis would want her sometimes to attack things like like female priests, and she would be like, "No, I'm not doing that," because she had a very strong sense that women were human and that. That was, you know, that women had roles to play and those roles were, you know, motherhood, obviously, you know, being a wife are among those roles. I'm very happy and satisfied in those roles, which I have being married to my husband, having my children. But but those are not the only roles. If that was all of my life, I would not be fulfilling everything God has designed me to do. That's right. Yes. Yes. Well, you um, you address the rise of monasteries. Um, you talk about uh, the the separation of the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And in the midst of that, you bring up the, the uh, topic of icons. And I would love, one, one of the reasons I uh, 
I wanted you to say maybe a little bit more about that is it, it helps us, I think, maybe try to understand a little bit about the range of, of worship practices that have been uh, part of uh, church history. And also, which I didn't know, you mentioned that Empress Irene called the Seventh Ecumenical Council in 787. And so often we think that it was only men doing all these things for the first thousand years or so, but there's Empress Irene <laughs> stepping in and, uh, and helping the church uh, establish right teaching. Yeah, I, th I think that it, it is true that it is easier to find evidence of men doing things, but that does not mean men were the only ones doing things, you know, and we're, and, and first of all, there, there were some female rulers, although Empress Irene was controversial in her own day. There were certainly people that were like, you know, no, no, the emperor can only be a dude. Uh, but there are also so many ways that we can find what women were doing, you know, as we get better at, you know, sort of have better technology to study things from the past, have better ideas of what just, you know, the sort of ephemeral things that women might have produced, you know. So I think more and more we discover, you know, women's story and when we, stories and when we try to tell it from that angle, you know, you, you add, it adds so much to it. Um, icons themselves were controversial. That's why the council got called. Uh, an icon briefly, and I, you need an Orthodox theologian to give a better explanation, but it is a, an image of a saint or a scriptural figure or Christ or the Virgin Mary, who is a saint and a scriptural figure. And, and, and that image is, they would say written. They don't say painted. It's not. It's not about the work of the artist. It's it's the artist sort of prays and creates this devotional object, and then uh, the devotional object becomes part of the worship space. If you've ever been in uh, many Orthodox churches, there's an iconostasis. There could be hundreds of them. Uh, there are small corners of the church where there are icons. We own about 15 icons ourselves, you know, that we bought in various places. So I made an iconostasis. You can't see it, but the, <laughs> the room I'm next to here, uh, we, we hung them all on the wall there to kind of mimic that. And the idea then is that you, <clears throat> you pray. And the controversy is, are you praying to the icon? Have you made a graven image? Um, and there were people in uh, the Orthodox Church in the century that said, yes and there were people that said no and the no the, the people that said no you have not made a graven image are the ones that won that's why icons are so uh so constitutive of orthodox worship today but they made some important distinctions that there is the kind of honor that you pay to god and then there's the kind of honor that you pay to people because they're made in the image of god um and uh one of them is Dulia and one of them is Latria, and I always get them mixed up. So I won't tell you which is which, but, uh, and that what you want, the honor you want to pay to the icon is the kind of honor you pay to people because they're made in the image of God. Um, and by doing that and by meditating on the, the scene that is depicted in the icon, and often there's a lot of symbolism, you know, if there's an open Bible or the way people are standing or Jesus holds his hands in different positions and different icons. So there's one icon where one of the eyes is very sort of artistic and, fakey looking and the other eye, this is an icon of Christ, is very natural looking and it's supposed to meditate, help you meditate on the humanity and divinity. Uh, it's a really fascinating image. So that by doing this, you you will learn about God, you will enter into the presence of God, you will, you know, enter into the presence of the saints, not to worship the saints, but to worship God with the saints. Uh, so, But, you know, that's a hard distinction to make and a lot of people over the years both within orthodoxy and then 
you know, Protestants now I think have a lot of a lot of trouble with this, and both in Orthodoxy and Catholicism. Oh, oh, do you worship saints? Oh, do you worship Mary? Well, you know, I mean, anything can get sort of corrupted on the ground sometimes, but the theological perspective in both of those cases is no. We this is the, more about the great cloud of witnesses. Um, this is more about entering into the fellowship of the saints. And if you ask a saint to pray for you, it's like asking, like when my grandfather was alive, I asked him to pray for me because he was a godly man. You know, now he's with Jesus, but he's, you know, he's still a godly man and he's close to, you know, I, I, and I can still say, pop up, you know, pray for me about this. That doesn't mean I'm worshiping him, you know. No, and you're not asking that his merit somehow gets passed on to you in some way or that kind of uh, mechanical or materialistic um, transactional, which is sometimes assumed, but not, as you say, not theologically what's right. being taught. And and in the in the 16th century, which if we were to talk about merit and transactions and saints, uh, it, it was a lot more complex than the picture we we give of it. We have this idea that sort of like all Catholics believed you were just sort of like pulling merit out of little boxes and dropping coins in little boxes, and it was not really like that at all. I mean, Martin Luther did not suddenly get the the tools to criticize what was going on in his day, like dropped in his head from heaven. You know, he had the tools to make that critique were already present in his tradition. And he could use some of what he had learned from that tradition to look at other parts of the tradition and say, you know, I don't like this. This has wandered too far from the truth. Um, but it, it's not because he, you know, God sort of told him this in his solitary glory. I think we get that picture of Luther. Like suddenly he realized that all of medieval Catholicism was crap. No, um, he, he came to the conclusion that quite a lot of it was crap, but he came to the conclusion because he was a good medieval Catholic and he was trying hard to be one. And he was using what he had read and what he and the people that he had, you know, he had studied with, you know, to come up with the critique. That's right. Well, and you make the case even before that in your discussion of monasticism, how, you know, it would, a, a monastery would start and everyone would be very committed to their vows of poverty and then they'd get rich. Yeah. <laughs> and so then they'd need to have a, a reformation all of their own, if you will, or a, um, yes. A, um, before we jump to the final kind of the more modern period though, there's one other thing I'd love to ask you about, and that is the Crusades. You do touch on those. And I feel like that is one area of our Christian history. There's a lot of misunderstandings about. It's kind of like icons. You know, we're not really sure as American evangelicals today or American conservatives, whatever we're going to call ourselves. I know we're <laughs> very reluctant to put labels on for good reasons often, but the Crusades, what, what were they about? And how do we understand that? Yeah. By the way, the label I use for myself is doctrinally orthodox, but not culturally evangelical. Oh, I like that. The, you are welcome to this label if it fits you. Uh, that's <laughs> usually you. how I describe myself. Um, yeah, the Crusades, they, they're not kind of one of our, our, our good moments. Uh, along with, and this is something that I learned more about after I had written the book and wish I had put in, along with our treatment of Jews, both in the Crusades and, and later, um, you know, the first of all, the idea was that, you know, because there had been Muslim conquest of the Holy Land, that, you know, people should go and they should conquer the Holy Land back from the infidels. Uh, 
first of all, I'm not even sure that was a good idea. You know, the, it, it, we wrestle a lot with things like the book of Judges that seem to tell us to do that, you know, the book of Joshua, that, you know, but yet it seems in the history of the church, when we have tried to violent, to sort of advance the kingdom by force, it, it, it ultimately backfires. So I think, I think it was a bad idea to start with. But then they didn't even do what they set out to do. And in particular, um, one of the things they did was when they got to you know, like Constantinople and places like this, they, they were, they, 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 which was, of course, you know, held at that point by, by Orthodox Christians, although later it was then also uh, conquered by Muslim forces. But they got to Constantinople and they were like, oh, these people look weird. I think they're infidels. And they trashed places of worship and they desecrated things and they put a prostitute on the throne of the patriarch. And they just, they did awful things to their brothers and sisters in Christ in the name of, you know, sort of pure doctrine and Western Christianity. Uh, and I just think there's a ton of lessons we could learn from that right now. I'm not even going to spell them out, but, you know, this refusal to see the person of Christ in the other who was in fact their brother and sister in Christ, you know, but did not worship in the way they did, did not look the way they did, did, did not sort of organize their lives in the way they did. You know, had all these weird icon pictures, you know, and, and then, you know, you've got the further question of what they were there to do in the first place, which was also not looking at fellow humans and seeing in them people for whom Christ died whether or not those fellow humans believe in Christ or not. Right, right. And you, uh, you know, one of the things that you mention uh, in, in the chapter on Luther is kind of a surprise that there was reform happening within the, within the Catholic Church, both then and, and uh, in your final chapter, you talk about the Second Vatican Council. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? That happened just a couple decades ago, 1962 to 65. Yeah, that's a, well, I, it happened before I was born. I'm nearly 50. So gosh, the decades are getting longer and longer all the time. Uh, but yeah, the Second Vatican Council was one of the most famous reforming efforts within Catholicism uh, in the, I would say in the past 500 years. And I think, you know, sometimes I think Protestants, we get this picture and I have, there was Jesus and there was Luther and there's us. Um, and yeah, Luther talked to Catholics, but we don't really need to worry about them. Now, there continued to be reform efforts in Catholicism that some of them were directly against Luther. Some of them were just kind of inspired by the general era of reform that was going on. So one of the things I try to do in that last chapter is kind of take the Catholic Church from Luther to now and talk about some of the different councils that were called and theologians who pushed for reform, you know, because Catholicism is not this sort of static thing. You know, modern Catholicism is not in many ways, you know, what it was in the 16th century. But of all those things, the, the Second Vatican Council is by far the biggest. Um, there was a First Vatican Council. I, it, you know, it was one of many councils that were called, uh, but that's why this is the second one, because there had been another one some decades before. Um, that was called to be held at the Vatican. Councils take their names from the place where they were. So, you know, Chalcedon, that's where, well, you know, yeah, Nicaea, that's because it was in Nicaea. So the Vatican Council was held in Rome. And it it turned out to be, uh, th there was had been some theological preparation for this in terms of the writings of certain theologians in the decades leading up to it who said we, we sort of need to stop 
doubling down on the Council of Trent, which was the big 16th century reform effort, and which did a lot of good at the time. It, you know, it did condemn Luther and a lot of the Protestants, but it also did some of the reforms he'd been asking for, you know, in terms of things like bishops living in their, actually living in their dioceses and monasteries not wasting their money and teaching people the faith and setting up seminaries so you could educate the priests and stuff. So, but in many ways for the next 500 years, then Catholics kind of doubled down on Trent. And the Second Vatican Council was the moment when they stopped doing that. Um, and some of the most obvious ways were in worship, and that was what ended up affecting, at least, as I say in the book, a number of Protestants, because many Protestant people who were in worship leadership looked at what the Catholic Church had done and said, oh, we want to do stuff like that, too. You know, the Methodist Church, you know, when I was a kid said, well, we're not sure we want to structure Methodist worship according to what we have now, which is kind of like the way John Wesley did it, which you know, it's fine. Uh, but they said, no, we want to structure it the way the early church did it as interpreted by the Second Vatican Council. And so many reforms were introduced into Catholic worship that made their way into Protestant worship. And there was also a general air of being willing, at least some Catholics, of being willing to listen to Protestants. There were Protestant theological observers um, at Vatican II, there were dialogues set up with, you know, there was a, there's a Methodist Catholic dialogue, there's a Lutheran Catholic dialogue, which produced a statement at one point that essentially said, we've, we've looked at what got Luther all upset in the 16th century, and we've come to some things we can both say about justification. Uh, that was about 20 years ago that came out. And, so, you know, and you mentioned um, earlier in our conversation that you wished you had, maybe if you had space, which I know uh, often the editors don't allow us to have more space, but that you would have talked a little bit about uh, Jews during this time. And Nostra Aetate came out of the Second Vatican yes. Council, didn't it? You can maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so in addition to the various, uh, you know, conciliar statements um, that, you know, letters, documents, uh, bulls, that, uh, you know, papal bulls, you know, all the things that, that came out of that, um, that had to do with relationships to to. Protestantism and with, you know, acknowledging that Protestants were also Christians. Uh, there was also uh, this statement which acknowledged that the ways in which the Catholic Church had, had dealt with people of many faiths, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, um, was, uh, had not been good. And obviously, and particularly um, the way that some of the Catholic Church had dealt with Jews in the, in the time of the Holocaust did not be good. You know, Protestants didn't do a really good job of that either. Uh, you know, if you think about the, the the German state church and things like that. So nobody's hands are clean in that. But this was the moment when the Catholic church made a, a sort of official apology for that and said, no, we, we need to dialogue. We need to learn from our Jewish brothers and sisters. We need to learn from Muslims. We need to learn from Hindus. We need to find ways that we cannot repudiate who we each are, but but share and begin to do something about these divisions that have sometimes, you know, turned very, very violent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, as I said earlier, I loved reading this book. There was, it was so engaging. You, you give the facts, but you give them in a way that's part of a story. And so it, it just, I so encourage our uh, listeners to check out Christian history in seven sentences, but at, not only that, you've also written blogs, including a particular blog fairly recently. And I know Serene had had some questions on that blog, A thousand, the title of which is A Thousand Points of Very Painful Light. And I hoped that maybe as we're coming to the end of our conversation, you could talk a little bit 
uh, with Serene about that blog. Yeah, you know, in today's conversation, uh, Jennifer, I was just noticing some themes that were coming out. We've talked a little bit about uh, the human experience and like dipped our toes into that question of what it means to be human and and even some you know, talked about some topics that um, are sometimes misunderstood. And in your blog post that Lynn and I both read, A Thousand Points of Very Painful Light, you started to paint a picture for us, the readers, of your journey towards um, receiving an autism diagnosis and what it means to try to verbalize and conceptualize what that experience has been for you. And I'm wondering, just as a woman, as a priest, as an academic, um, what is something that you would like for someone to, else to understand about you that you would hope that they would know about you, what that experience has been like? I just think this would be a great opportunity for our listeners to hear from you about that. Thanks. Yeah, I, I wrote that poem about, uh, or the poem, that, that, that blog post about, you know, at the age of 49, receiving an official diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder level one which is what sometimes gets called mild or high-functioning autism. I don't like either of those terms because those are terms about how I function to make neurotypicals happy. And, um, you know, I'd rather just say this this is what it is in the DSM, ASD level one. Um, I, it's something that I had wondered about myself for years. Um, my mother, who is now with Jesus and who I firmly believe was herself autistic, uh, was like, oh, you don't, you don't need to go try to get treatment for that. Everybody's like that. Well, <laughs> everybody's not like that, but she was like that. And my uncle, my uncle was like that. And, you know, they were meant, it's a something that sometimes runs in families. So my older daughter uh, was concerned about various things. She's, I mean, she's homeschooled, but she was still concerned about you know, her schoolwork and the stress of the pandemic. And we talked, we got her in with the adolescent medicine specialist who recommended that she be evaluated. And we were doing this Zoom meeting where the psychologist was asking my daughter all these questions. Have you ever you done this? Have you ever done this? What did she do when she was a kid? And I, I kept having to stop myself from telling stories about how I fit these criteria. <laughs> like, my, we're here to get my daughter diagnosed. But afterwards, I said, well, I've always wondered. And so I talked to the adolescent psychologist, and she recommended me to someone who works with adults, which, by the way, is very hard to find people who are qualified to do an autism spectrum diagnosis in adult females. Um, we have this conception that this is a disorder that affects little boys, um, you know. And but anyway, I, I was connected to a very good psychologist who, who uh, gave me several tests and interviewed me um, and wrote up a report. And in many ways, it's like, well, you know, it doesn't change anything. I have I have a PhD. I have a marriage. I have a job. Um, I'm not. I don't need to ask for accommodations in many ways because I already have them. You know, I work from home. I do, I, I do everything through Zoom meetings. I set my own temperature. I have my own music. So many of the things that people who are autistic and working in offices and need sensory accommodations for, you know, I can, I can control that. But it just still really helped to know. Um, and one of the things that that blog post was about and that I've become very committed to is, is trying, you know, I, I am not only a verbal autistic, I am a hyperverbal autistic. I've talked your ear off for 39 minutes. But there are so many autistics who are nonverbal or semi-verbal, and I have actually had the experience at times of, of you know when things are upsetting of, of going semi-verbal. But you know, I I have a job in which I use my words. I have a PhD that involves using my words, and so one of the things I want to do is use my words. 
for my autistic brothers and sisters who can't use their words because I think I can help describe to neurotypical people what this feels like because I have all these years of collecting vocabulary from from my my job and from you know the ways I've been functioning in the world but yet I also know that the way I experience the world is not a neurotypical way and I mean honestly as I said before we started recording being being an autistic person is actually a really good approach in a way to getting a PhD or to writing a book because you persevere, you're detail-oriented. You li- you not only organize things, you like to organize things. You like to look at categories. You like to see patterns. So it actually makes a lot of sense to me that I would have done the things I did with my life and ended up, you know, writing the books I have and, you know, being in jobs where, like with Christian history where I do an awful lot of managing moving pieces. Um, so, but I think what I want to leave people with is the concept that, you know, autism, is, first of all, you know, autism is not, it's like, oh my gosh, my child's autistic. What am I going to do now? They can never have a normal life. Well, no, that's not true. And I mean, there are severe, I'm level one and there's level two and there's level three. And there are, there are people who need many more supports than I do, uh, but it's not automatically a death sentence, um, you know? And so I like to tell people, look, you know, you know me, I've written this book, so I do all these things and I'm autistic and, you know, that, that, that can happen. And it's not something that only affects children. Uh, it's not something that only affects men. Uh, there are a lot of, of female autistics out there. And, you know, we need to, we need to see people as people. We need to see the image of Christ in each person. Um, and we need to it doesn't mean that autistic people never do anything wrong or never upset other people. You know, th- th- there are things I have to work on, but knowing what sorts of things bother me, such as, you know, sensory overstimulation, then I can work to limit my stimulation, you know, so that I'm a better wife and a better mother and a better friend and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I think we need to not automatically assume that if someone is autistic, they're just going to be a problem. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your experience with us. I think that that's really helpful for us to learn from one another. And um, are are there any resources if someone wants to learn a little bit more about this, any particular authors or resources that you would point listeners to, um, to learn a little bit more about what you're describing? Yes. Um, well, there are a couple of things. One is to, you get, there are, uh, if you're on social media, there are hashtags and groups hashtags on Instagram and groups on Facebook of, of autistic people, um, you know, which, which it is useful to join. Many of them allow people who are not autistic, but who are allies to join under, you know, under certain conversational rules that they abide by. Um, also, I want to recommend a book to you. And in true autistic fashion, I have forgotten the name of the book, but I can tell you the author. Uh, his name is Daniel Bowman, and he's a professor of English at Taylor University. And he's recently written a book of essays about being an autistic English professor at a Christian college that is fantastic. And until five minutes ago, I could have told you the title. Oh, we'll put it on. We'll put it on uh, when the podcast is launched. So we'll have the title. We'll have the title there. Uh, that's no problem. This happened to me on my, my um, PhD exams. I, I, they asked me a question about someone that I had studied and knew and just the whole thing left and it wasn't coming back. You know, I'm like Walter Rauschen, but she's really important to American religious history. I know all about him. <laughs> but on my PhD exams, could I tell you about him? No. So I can't tell you the name of Daniel Pullman's book, but it's really good. And everybody, and everybody should go read it. Great. You follow him on social media. He's got a lot of resources that he recommends as well. Wonderful. And I certainly, 
Yes, absolutely. And I, I do recommend the thousand points of very painful life light. And so we will make sure that that's also on, um, uh, available for um, our listeners to be able to see. Yeah. Uh, this time has flown by, Jennifer, and I could spend another hour or two just listening to all the all the wisdom and the, the historical perspective that you've brought us. This this has been so fantastic. Thank you so much for spending time uh, with us, and I know our our uh, listeners will really enjoy. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. In today's episode, Dr. Lynn Kohick has been speaking with Dr. Jennifer Woodruff-Tate. If you enjoyed today's conversation, we encourage you to go and check out Jennifer's most recent book, Christian History in Seven Sentences from InterVarsity Press. And we'll also include a link in the podcast description to the blog mentioned in today's article, A Thousand Points of Very Painful Light. We hope that you'll join us right back here again next week as we continue the conversation on issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry.